and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorges. What are you talking about? Of course I have a plan for this podcast. It's a great plan. A beautiful plan. It is. It's a good plan. I, I approved of this plan. It's a great plan. Today is episode eight of our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series. And today we'll be talking about two more Indiana Jones-esque adventures from 1986, both of which have their roots in kind of pulp literature. Uh, The first up today is Sky Pirates. Hang on to your seats. Holy been raided. The stone has been romanced. And now, the great adventure is back. An amazing discovery has been made. The secret power shared by the ancient people who built places like Stonehenge and the pyramids of Egypt. And an incredible journey is about to begin. All action. We wouldn't want all that power to fall into the wrong hands, would we? Thrills. Surprises. Hey, that's my plane. If Savage gets to Easter Island before you do, who knows what forces he'll unleash? Danger. You really do fight dirty. Only sometimes. Sky Pirates, it'll be the ride of your life. Rob, the Ark has been raided, the stone romanced, but now... The real adventure begins. <laughs> or so says the poster for Sky Pirates, or as it was titled in some markets, Dakota Harris. Which uh, I don't believe they ever say the first name. It's always Le- Lieutenant Harris. Lieutenant or, Harris. Or uh, just Harris or Flight Le- Lieutenant. I, yeah, I forget it, it, the, the actual term because I'm not a military guy. It still might be a better title yeah. because – just just say up front, there's no pirates in this movie, sky or otherwise. Yep. There's just none. Yeah. And that's <laughs> also, yeah. Like, at least the guy's name is Dakota Harris. I mean, I suppose that's something. But the, the thing is, is if, because this was made in Australia, correct? It was. It's an Australian it an Australian film. film. Sydney Harris was right there right waiting there. for Oh, my them. goodness. Oh, yeah. Sydney yes. Harris. Like, be be proud, man. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. We could or Melbourne Harris, if you like. Yeah, I thought about Melbourne Harris, and then I, <laughs> and then I gravitated towards Sydney. That's all. Melbourne's yeah. a fine city. We love you in Melbourne. <laughs> we do. <laughs> and I and I know I'm saying it incorrectly, but uh, you know, so all apologies. Oh my goodness! I, um, I don't know. I just I don't know, you know how. I thought it was just Melbourne. It's, I, it's I, like San, it's like people saying San Pedro, and you're like, no, it's the incorrect San Pedro pronunciation San P- yeah, here, which uh, they yeah. get correct 
in Jake Speed, by the way. They do. They do get cracked in Jake Speed. Tying it all back in. Sky Pirates is an Australian film, as we mentioned, written by John D. LeMond and directed by Colin Eggleston. Now, LeMond previously wrote and directed the 1979 Australian sex comedy Felicity. No relation to the show of the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Eggleston had a long career in Australian film and television, and one of his most notable films was the survivalist horror film Long Weekend, which I saw a few years ago and really liked. Yeah, that's a great one. And the uh, the sex comedy background makes sense uh, a little bit because, while well, this is not a sex comedy, you do actually get some moments of heat oh, yeah. between Harris and uh, what Melanie? Oh, that train, the train sequence. Oh yeah, yeah. But we'll we'll get there when we get yes, there. But I was we'll, like, we'll, we, we, absolutely. This movie has as much heat as like a romancing the stone, or yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, absolutely. The film stars John Cargreaves, who is also in Long Weekend, Meredith Phillips, Max Phipps, Bill Hunter, and Simon Chilvers. And I, I, I gotta say, I like this movie. It's an odd film. Like there's some strange stuff in it. Like not just strange, like weird mystical stuff, but there, there's some odd... Okay, well, here, let me give you my thumbnail take on Sky Pirates. Have you ever had one of those friends, Rob, who is totally normal most of the time, and then every once in a while just goes up to 11 with no warning whatsoever? Like, like he doesn't get into arguments most of the time, but once in a while we'll break a bottle and start waving it around like a crazy person. And then afterwards is back to completely normal. Sky Pirates is like that guy. Every once in a while it goes to 11 with no warning. Yeah, I think I am that friend, although not violent. <laughs> I'm the non-violent version. I occasionally can just be a bit much. I know that I'm not that guy because I know that I'm at 11 most of the time. And that's, that's you know, true. You yeah. just stay there. So Yeah, but this is, that's yeah. not Sky, yeah. Sky Pirates. It's like, oh, it's going along normal. And then all of a sudden, it's like it's broken a bottle and it's got, you know, it's it's got a shard of glass at your throat. Yeah. And, and I know that this uh, this is, is where I'd like to take one tiny step into the larger trend and, and the trends that we've been seeing throughout all of these series. And that is. And the the Raiders of the Lost Ark one is a little more compressed. Sometimes you can get about a decade. Sometimes it's slightly less than that from your initial uh, big hit and the hits that follow. And the further afield you get, the more filmmakers seem to go, well, we can't just do the same old thing because it seems like you had Raiders and now you've had a bunch of movies trying to follow in that in the footsteps of Raiders. And so now you have to do something different, which is where I think you get you know, them, uh, you know, you get the, the mystical elements that are different mm-hmm. from this is not uh, Christian or Judeo, no. you know, it's not, it's not the Ark of the Covenant. Well, it's, it's kind of nothing. It's, well, they're, it's kind of like, they kind of just made it up, but it's not really that yeah. well defined. No, it doesn't, it, which is kind of a missed thing. Cause there, there are elements where you feel that maybe they could have actually localized some yes. of the mystical stuff. Yes. And, and maybe had something to to say about that. I know that Australia and their local uh, uh, first peoples have uh, similar issues to uh, the United States and its local first peoples and the history thereof. You could have you could have gone into something interesting with that. Uh, it, this just does seem like a hodgepodge. No, no, it's some someone read Chariots of the Gods and just said, "Oh, well, let's yeah. just do that." You know, that's but, but the one aspect of it that goes further afield that I actually thought was 
to me interesting is kind of the uh, you're not fighting the Germans. Yes. You know, not to get too ahead of the game, but there's a bit of a spy element not knowing who you're working against and double crosses where it, it's almost felt like Raiders – if someone was like, well, let's do Raiders, but kind of mashed up with the Ipcris file or like yeah. something like that. Yes. We, we open with this opening narration talking about legends of ancient astronauts believed by primitive people to be gods who left behind evidence of their visits in monuments such as Stonehenge and the Great Pyramids. Again, it's all very, very chariots of the gods type of stuff, which was a very popular book in like the 70s. So its influence still at this point would have been pretty significant. And we see this dig happening in this large cave and the caption on screen reads, Easter Island, March 1886. I don't know why we needed to know it was March, but- Or 1886, frankly, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. <laughs> it's true. It honestly could have been any time. It could have been a couple months earlier. Like we know why it's Easter Island, not only because they tell us, but because of the Moai. The statues for which Easter Island has become famous. And the voiceover tells us of a sacred stone tablet that was hidden in a subterranean cave and guarded by a chosen race of people. And within the stone tablet lay the key to all earthly power and knowledge. And my immediate questions with this kind of thing is, first of all, chosen people by whom? And how do we know all this? Like, where is all this information, this lore coming from? We we never learned, like, that is an omniscient narrator who we never hear from again. And it's one of my big issues with the movie is we have this sort of powerful and ancient MacGuffin, but we have no idea what its power really is. And therefore, we don't know what the consequences are if the bad guys will get it. It's... It's what Raiders of the Lost Ark does so well, and this is kind of the ineffective version of it. And they, I, I think the the MacGuffin is a big problem, and it's it's funny. I'm going to say something that sounds nitpicky, but I actually think it's it's part of what you're saying is the mm. larger point of you know having a MacGuffin because you have to, but not really thinking it all the way through. Right. There is a visual representation of the MacGuffin, which is this kind of glowing orange light, right? Yeah. Which is not unfamiliar to you if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark or sure. frankly Pulp Fiction, right? I was thinking the same thing. Yep. Yeah. Glowing warm light as a MacGuffin for the thing that you can't really quite see and it's mystical magical. Yeah. But you see people's reaction to it. Yeah. Which is great. All of that's fine. The problem is when as a filmmaker, you don't realize that that light has to be special only for your MacGuffin. Yeah. You can't use the same light to be like, oh, that's also the radar screen glowing off the guy's face <laughs> yes. and a closet light or whatever. Like you, And that to me, just it's the larger note of they really don't understand the MacGuffin and aren't differentiating it. And that yeah. goes all the way up and down, even to small visual things like that. Absolutely. What is weird about this opening narration, I mean, we're still in the first you know two minutes of the movie here, but what's odd about it is the, the sequence is sort of unfolding and the narration is continuing and the narration tells you what you're going to see on screen just before it happens. So like the narration continues talking about how the tablet was broken into three pieces and stolen by robbers. And then we actually watch that transpire about five seconds after the narration has told us it's going to happen. It is very, very strange. Yeah. And, and that's one of those things that it is just execution. Yeah. I mean, the same thing happens 
at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, that's true. And that's amazing. Yeah. So the idea that you can't show and tell is incorrect. It's just that if you're not amazing, showing and telling is like (laughs) the worst. (laughs) But uh, as with all things, if you're amazing, you can do whatever you want. That's absolutely Uh, true. Artistically speaking. Artistically speaking. yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, no, I, still the, mu- we live. I believe in the social contract, Chris. We live in a society, Rob. That's that's what it is. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree. Uh, that said, this opening sequence is cool because we do get a guy crushed by a falling Moai, which is awesome. Oh, yeah. And, and I know I've been picking nits here, but make no mistake, this is an enjoyable movie. I like oh, this yeah. movie. No, it's, oh, ve- yeah. it's very entertaining. And it's uh, then this whole opening narration, I think, must have been added. Later. Producers never do that, Chris. <laughs> Producers never add VO to explain things because they're worried the audience is full of idiots. That never happens. Because we get a second narration starting out. This one from the main character, a Royal Australian Air Force pilot, Dakota Harris. And he starts giving his narration. So we have two different voiceover narrations within two and a half minutes. Uh, we get a caption that reads, Australia. August 1945, as Dakota Harris is brought to an airbase to fly a secret mission to the United States. And and I will say, I, I thought this part of the movie, like, they're clearly getting ready to fly. It's in the last days of World War II. I did think there was a kind of lack of energy. Like, everybody feels like they're just sort of milling around having tea before they get on this. Yeah. It's like they know the war's over. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like they're getting ready for a commuter flight from Boston to New York. And I think they're going to DC, right? They're supposed yeah. to fly to DC. In which case I was just thought uh are, the Americans are assholes. It's like let them fly to LA. Can't 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 you send a senator or someone <laughs> or a there's army in in LA like That's true. Yeah, they're yeah. making them go all the way to DC cuz you're jerks. Yeah. <laughs> We never we never get a sense from this air why Dakota Harris is so special. Like, what is it about this guy that is so special that they need him to fly this plane? It's like one of the guards, as they're going in, mentioned how he saved his life. But it's kind of general. It's it's like it's it's not like I, what we don't get is the why him. Why this guy? Yeah, like in Raiders, when yes. the government people come to Indiana Jones because they need to know about Ark of the Covenant and Abner and exactly. all of that, and they—he's the only one. He's the expert, uh, and as a matter of fact, the only person with more knowledge has been kidnapped and gone. Right. And so we we have this flight, and aboard, aboard the flight are General Hackett. We get Reverend Mitchell, who tells he's some kind of religious advisor on this project, and Major Savage who just seems to be kind of a general asshole. And uh, and seeing them off is the Reverend's daughter and assistant, Melanie, who we will come back to a little bit later. Uh, a couple a couple of things here. <laughs> First, <laughs> that American general's ac- American accent is atrocious. It's not good. Coming. No, no it's, it's, uh, it's 60s Doctor Who level American. Yeah. And, and additionally, they have this American general talking about, uh, you know, they're like, oh, what are you, where are all these crates you're hauling around? He's like, oh, that's Kentucky whiskey. I don't know about 1945, but I can assure you absolutely nobody in the United States of America uses the term Kentucky whiskey. It's bourbon. You don't even say where it's from. You don't say Kentucky. You just say bourbon. Tennessee whiskey is Jack Daniels. I don't. Right. But there's no, I guess technically 
Lyndon B. Johnson had not signed the Bourbon Act yet in 1945. But even then, I doubt that they were saying Kentucky whiskey. I, I, I wonder why they're bringing it from Australia to the United States. That's the mystery is, is yeah. like this is obviously he's obviously selling knockoff whiskey in the United States. And that's, yeah. you know, you put that label on there. That is a contract that tells you where that was made. And uh, I think the general's up to no good. The other important thing to know is that uh, Mitchell's daughter, Mitchell, Mitchell, uh, Miss Mitchell, <laughs> when she sees them off, boy, oh boy, does she see them off because she is I fucking Lieutenant Harris like nobody's oh, yeah. business. <laughs> and I know that <laughs> I know that there's a reason that she's intent on him that we find out later. But like, it does not play that way in the moment. It's like, oh, these two are going to get it on, which they you know, to be fair, it does kind of happen. What, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's uh, Spoiler alert, that's going to happen. But what, what makes me laugh is that throughout the movie, Harris refers to her not as Melanie. No. But as Mitch. Yes. And I kept thinking he was calling her, get, get over here, bitch. I'm like, oh, my God. That's just so, oh. that's so wrong. <laughs> like, no, no, no. He's saying Mitch. 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 And I was hearing Midge. Like M I D G E a little bit, which maybe it is. I don't know, but in any case. <laughs> so there, there's this crate. They're transporting this crate, the contents of which are unknown, but obviously it's one of the pieces of the tablet that we saw smashed in the opening. Uh, I want to mention here there's a pretty good score to this movie uh, from Brian May, not the oh, yes. Brian May of Queen, but who did the Australian uh, composer who did the first two Mad Max films, as well as a whole lot of other Australian new wave movies. Uh, and it's a really good score, like in a very Indiana Jones score and it's really effective yeah the the score is fantastic and um and just other things too with um in this airfield area you know they they have a lot of planes on the ground mm-hmm. uh as background which is nice and then also some of the i thought the aerial work and and if they're using also some stock footage i thought all of that was excellent and, really good uh, like like fun yeah. yeah, absolutely. We, as the plane takes off, we do get the, the and, and I think it's the first time we've watched one of these movies where they just wholesale swiped the lines on a map on convention a map. from Indiana Jones. Like that was just like they, they weren't yep. trying to do a spin on it. They were just like, we're doing this. We're doing we're just going for it. And I, you know, honestly, go for it. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, I high-fived myself when it <laughs> happened. It was great. The plane itself is headed to Bora Bora to pick up another scientist on the way, and, and later, as we'll learn, another piece of the tablet. So it's going to go to Bora Bora and then Washington. Uh, and we get a fun bit of dialogue about uh, between Harris and the Reverend on how he loves flying, but he's not too fond of heights. Not too crazy about flying, Reverend. I usually try to avoid it at all costs. This trip is necessary, unfortunately. I love flying. Heights I'm not too fond of. (laughs) (laughs) This your work? This is my life. What's in that cargo, River? Oh, just a few old bits and pieces, Flight Lieutenant. And part of an ancient jigsaw puzzle. One of the crew starts poking around the crate and holy shit, it's on fire. It starts just, and and this is where we get, the plane seems to be engulfed in some kind of electrical storm. There's the orange light uh, and it gets separated from their escort. And you start to see all kinds of crazy stuff floating in the air, including giant floating Moai 
coming at the plane. It's so strange and it's cool. I like it. And and for anyone who was a kid in 1980s America, uh, essentially they're flying through the commercial for the Time Life Mysteries of the Unknown book series. Oh my God, you're right. It's it's pretty much exactly that. I wanted those books so bad. I thought I could solve- I did If too. I had those books, I thought I could solve every mystery in the universe. I really- We'd know how they built the pyramids by now, which also we probably do and I just don't know, but we'll just we'll just pretend <laughs> that I would have solved it. They're, they're on the plane. A plane receives like a distress signal from the Titanic, which they point out had been 30, yeah, sank 30 years earlier. And they also get a broadcast of a podcast Apollo 11, which obviously is in the future. So, so clearly there's some wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff going on here. And the plane goes down in the ocean, and as does its cargo, and a few people escape in a life raft. You know, there was a, there's a bunch of people who die on the plane that we never learn their names. And a bunch of people who die on the raft off screen that we also don't learn their names. <laughs> yes. We get to this graveyard of ships and boats. It's like this floating graveyard of lost ships and planes. And it's really cool. Like the way, I mean, this wasn't a super high budget movie, but they did a great job of sort of creating the atmosphere so much so that I was intrigued. And it's one of the things that frustrates me about this movie is they intrigue me and then they kind of pull back from it. It's like, oh, here's this interesting thing, but we're going to go in another direction. Yeah. I think my favorite thing in this air in this sequence of the film is so the plane crash lands into the water. Yeah. Have to life raft. They're going out. It's been set up how important these tablets are in the crates and they're they, this is the mission. Yes. This is the mission is to do this. That's the mission. And what happens when uh you know the reverend and some other people are like, "Oh, we have to save the the, the crate of the uh the special tablets." What does Lieutenant Harris do, Chris? Dakota Harris is like, nope, we're not doing that. And he kicks the crate into the water so that it sinks. Yes, he actually kicks the crate into the water. I mean, it, it, there's no wind-up at all. It just happens like lightning, <laughs> like 1980s optical lightning, which is also happening all around them. And it's oh, yeah. amazing. Absolutely. This is the biggest own goal in the movie as well, because this winds up, <laughs> it comes back to bite Lieutenant Harris in his uh, uh, rear end, if you will. Yes, it does. It does. So they're they're floating out and and they they come across this American ship, the USS Idaho, a a ship that had gone missing a few years earlier. So they board the Idaho and the Reverend very helpfully tells us that, oh, this was part of the Philadelphia experiment, a rumored effort by the US Navy to turn ships invisible. And according to him, the Idaho disappeared but never reappeared. And I want to just say a word about the Philadelphia experiment, because that was a real life rumor. Like that is not something the movie made up. Now, I don't necessarily believe that it's true, but it's it's a real life rumor that first surfaced in the 1950s and really gained widespread awareness in the late 70s. I think there was a movie by that title later on. Yeah, I think in the 80s, maybe. Yeah, it was definitely, I think it was in the 80s. What I'm saying is this, if the Philadelphia experiment was real, this preacher from down under in 1945 would have never heard those words together, let alone just be the helpful guy to be like, oh, you know, it's the Philadelphia experiment. Of course. Yeah, it's true. Unless, unless he was getting that information from a higher power. Well, it's true. He is a he is a, a man of the cloth. A MacGuffin power. <laughs> they get on the ship and they they have like visions of the crew on deck, and it's really like like they look at the log and the log just stops, and it's really interesting. Yeah. And I'm like, ooh, I want to see them explore this like 
you know, this, this sort of spooky, mysterious ship. But no, they just go, they decide, they see an island off the way, and they decide, hey, we're going to go there. So we never get more of the ship. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they head back in the raft to the island. And as you mentioned, a couple of guys die off screen, and we hear Harris is like, August 1945, I commenced a log of my own. We'd been drifting for days. We lost Logan and Hackett. There were three of us. So you're only left with Harris, Savage, and the Reverend. And they realize that they are off the coast of Easter Island, which the plane did not have enough fuel to reach. That was not somewhere they could have really reached. And so they're they're getting to the island. I'm like, okay, all right, we're not going to explore the strange, mysterious ship. We're going to explore the strange, mysterious island. But no, that disappears too. And then they're suddenly rescued. And it's like, no, I want to explore a strange, mysterious thing. I'm like, come on. Yeah, but wouldn't you rather have military tribunal hearings about a mysterious thing? Well, yes. I mean, who doesn't love military tribunals? <laughs> Everybody loves military. That's a whole, like, honestly, what, where would Aaron Sorkin be without without a court-martial? I mean, it's uh, it's essential. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Raiders of the Lost Office building, and it's about to happen. Yeah. It's all going down. Rob, I got news for you. There's no Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip without, without a court-martial first. Yeah, it's true. But uh, yeah, we're, we're back in Australia. The war is over and Dakota Harris is court-martialed for losing the plane. The Reverend has gone missing and uh, isn't there to support his case. And Savage goes from being a, a just a jerk to the full-on villain of the piece, uh, which is only an issue because he's not a really great villain. Like He's not particularly menacing. Uh, we don't know exactly what he wants with the pieces of the stone tablet or what he'll do if he gets it. Partially, it just seems like he's a villain because he's kind of a big jerk. Yes. It would be nice to hear why he thinks there's some sort of world domination or whatever out of getting the power from these tablets. But Tell us that. Give us a monologue, man. Yeah. Well, Harris is convicted in the court-martial, but don't worry because he makes literally the easiest escape I've ever seen in a movie. He's riding in an open Jeep with one driver and one guard and no handcuffs. And he grabs the driver's gun and he hits the guard and he jumps out. And that's it. He like hops over one fence and boom, he's escaped. No, I mean, it was 1945. <laughs> Escaping captivity hadn't been invented yet. So he here is the first man to ever escape the MPs. I, I mean, like, like the guys back up in the Jeep and then they kind of look down the, the, the street and they, they don't see him. And so they just kind of go off. Like they just kind of pull away. They, they like, just give up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Harris goes to see an officer about some kind of affidavit, which I wasn't really clear on. But what I do love, he, he goes to the front desk. He asks for uh, you know, General So-and-so. And the guy asks him, well, what's your authority? And he whips out the gun that he took, complete with a whoosh sound effect. And he's like, this is my authority. I'm like, oh, oh, wow, oh, shit. He's going to plug this guy if he doesn't get what he wants. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say, um, this, is, this is in the performance, he feels more dangerous than any of the other heroes that we've had so far. Yes, yes. And more dangerous than the villains of this movie. <laughs> well, that, that as well. And it is all an act on his part, because as we, as we go through, he's very much a Boy Scout. Uh, though not as much of a Boy Scout as Jake Speed. <laughs> Isn't it refreshing? But uh, <laughs> but you feel the like he's a little bit more dangerous in, in the good way. We keep talking where they try to make 
the hero feel a little bit on edge and they wind up just creating a second villain <laughs> or someone you hate. But Dakota Harris, he just feels like, oh, this guy's a little, he's a little badass. Yeah. yeah. He's a little Bronson. He's just a little bit Bronson. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, he's he goes to try and find uh, the Reverend's daughter, Melanie, um, which is good because at that moment, she is being chased by Savage, who is trying to kill her in the museum in which she works. Now, the fact that she's being chased through a museum is only important because they have her, there's a shot, which, I mean, just has to be a deliberate nod to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. A mummy falls out of a sarcophagus and scares the crap out of her. And I'm just like, but it's a museum. It's not like an ancient tomb. It was just <laughs> a like, poorly kept museum. That museum should secure its mummies better. Like, that's not good, like, treatment of antiquities. Yeah. Yeah. It it was at this point in the movie that I have a special note. It's a direct question to you. (laughs) Just to you, Chris. About about Miss Mitchell. Yes. And I will read, uh, and I quote, Chris, is that 80s or 40s hair? Because it's definitely 1980s rouge (laughs) or blush on the cheeks. I can tell you that. But I'm going to ask you, you're the hair expert. I was getting kind of some Bonnie Bedelia hair vibes from like, you know, presumed innocent or something. Oh, no, she's... Uh, She is definitely Australian Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah. There's no question. Like it's, it's, yeah, no, it, 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 it feels like, uh, yeah, no, it, it, I think it's an eighties hair. It feels like Miss Gennaro, you know, or McLean. Sorry. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. It has that, it has that vibe. Yeah. Okay. So Australian Bonnie Bedelia, <laughs> she makes it to this elevator. Like she's being chased. She makes it to the elevator and there's another woman inside and she's like, oh, like, you know, there's. There's a momentary sense of relief because like, okay, she's this guy's not going to just come and kill everybody like it's she's safe for a second. But what is what does Savage do? He throws a grenade into the elevator. It explodes the floor underneath the other woman. The random woman then plummets to her death. And it's just like, this is what I'm talking about with this movie just randomly going up to 11. And it's just like, wait, what? Like, what? what is going on? Yeah, this is a villainous <laughs> villain who does not care. And it's not a movie that's going to save bystanders. No. 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 But thankfully, Harris shows up in time to save Melanie. He even gives the Bond-esque quip. You shouldn't hang around in places like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and there you go, and 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 somehow Harris gets his bomber jacket back, and he and Melanie head off to some location in the outback to find her father. Uh, and they steal a plane to do it, and and there's a good bit where Harris knows the guard. Oh yeah, and the guard is okay with him taking the plane, but he asks if Harris could hit him to make it look convincing, and Harris is like, "Well, I can't do that." But then Melanie not like hits him really hard. Harris is like, "Why did she hit that guy so hard? Like, my goodness." Yeah, um, and that's it's a great moment. It's a great it's a great screen punch from her as well. Yeah, and uh, and she she's great in this movie. I think absolutely. There's a pretty good air chase. Like yeah. there's another plane following them. I'm not sure who that plane is supposed to be, but the, like there's where the, the it, it shoots the plane that they're in and starts on fire. So Harris has to go out on the wing and put out the fire. And it's all really like it's really good. Like the the all of the the aerial stunt work is really good. Yeah, and, and, and it's real. I mean, there are clearly some close ups where they probably just have the plane on the ground and they hey, he's crawling around on the wing, not right, but. They have those long shots, but they're not too long yeah. where you definitely – there is a physical man on the physical old old plane that they have up in the sky, 
And, you know, it's pretty thrilling um, in that kind of Mission yeah. Impossible, you know, uh, you know, but with decades earlier kind of way. Or I guess only a decade yeah. earlier than the first one. But Yeah, it's true. And the, uh, and the score in this moment goes full John Williams Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, it absolutely does. But in a really great way. It really works. So they, they get to the outback, this place where they're going. You know, the, this this spot that they, oh, this is where we think we're going to find the Reverend, uh, Melanie's missing father. And they they go to this bar to get information. Now, this bar seems to be located somewhere in suburban barter town. Yes. Because all of a sudden, they step into a Mad Max movie in this bar, and it's like, Wait, what? Like, is this what just Australia was like in the 80s if you went outside the city? <laughs> please, if you're listening in Australia, let us know. Uh, what, <laughs> please. Was Mad Max a documentary? That's what we need to know. <laughs> yeah. It was like they had the sets left over from Mad Max. We're like, well, we might as well use those. So they, they go see, they're told by the bartender, oh, you want to talk? They're looking for the, the father. They're told by the bartender, you want to go see a man named O'Reilly. O'Reilly has the information you want. Uh, and O'Reilly wants to play cards for the information. Because, you know, nothing's free. Nothing's free in Barter Town. And uh, and I think oh, before they start, like one thing, just before they start playing cards, O'Reilly cracks an egg into a glass and drinks it like he's Rocky fucking Balboa. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. We can add that, by the way, to the list of totally 80s tropes that don't exist anymore. Yeah. Drinking a raw egg is a sign of masculine virility <laughs> and like how badass you are. And salmonella. <laughs> <laughs> so does ha- Rob, does Harris want to play cards for this information? Is he is that the yeah, game he wants to play? It seems kind of you know, not not that's kind of like kids. No, stuff. anybody that's can play stuff. cards. No, no, no. What what do you what do you think we should play for the information? Uh, I I'm a big fan of the Deer Hunter, so I'm going to say <laughs> Russian roulette. Russian roulette. They decide to play not not just they. Harris whips out a pistol and insists on playing Russian roulette, and we have this extended Russian roulette sequence, and I'm just like. What the fuck is going on here? Like, it is just bananas. And it's Russian roulette that ends. Uh, it's like combining the deer hunter, but with dirty Harry. So, which completely undermines the deer <laughs> hunter of it all, quite frankly. Yes. But that's not what they're going for. And this, again, no, Dakota no. Harris is the most dangerous man this side <laughs> of, um, I don't know. The Sydney, yeah, the Outback, yeah, and even Perth. Yeah. It's like it's like he's he's the most wanted man in Canberra, but it's just out of nowhere. It's not like it, it's like it's everything's normal, and then all of a sudden we're playing this intense game of Russian roulette, and the the guy takes the gun, he's gonna shoot Harris instead of himself, and oh, it's got a blank. Yep, I'm like oh, you know, but like it's just it's so bananas, and and you know the fight breaks out in the bar, and then. Melanie is kidnapped. And and what's funny is I don't think she's kidnapped by anybody connected with Savage. Oh, no. It's apparently just what happens yes. here. Yes. 
reference earlier comment about Mad Max being a documentary. Yeah, no, so then we have a truck chase that ensues. Oh. I like the truck chase is good. Uh, but again, you want to talk about this movie just going to 11. Uh, my favorite parts of the truck chase, you know what I'm talking about. I do. I think I do. When Harris is driving a truck and there's this barrel, like an oil barrel, and Harris, he drives the truck into it in such a way to kick it like a soccer ball and he it arcs it arcs the oil barrel uh into right. a, uh, into a bad guy who's on the ground perfectly like he's bending it like beckham with the truck and the the oil drum and it's i love it i think that's a legitimate move in australian rules football oh uh, there you go there you go before that there's something else that perfectly sums up this movie so there's two trucks chasing each other, and Harris jumps from the truck that he's taken onto the truck where where the bad guys are with Melanie. Oh yes, yes, yes. And he takes one of them and he 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 pulls them off and kind of tosses them aside as as one would in this kind of situation. So this is this is the movie. This is the kind of movie we are in. Yeah. He doesn't just toss the guy and the guy falls off the side of the road or something like that. The guy falls off the truck, rolls down a hill into an electric fence that he is then electrocuted by. And I'm like, (laughs) what is going on? Like the collateral damage. And it's like a throw punch that this guy doesn't go onto the, like he flies through the air. This is like, (laughs) it's like an old Western where you fire a bullet. And when a bullet hits someone, they fly back 10 feet. Uh, Yeah. It's so inexplicably over the top. It is just and like yet joyous what? to see. <laughs> oh yeah. And then and then the, the climax, Harris throws a guy through the front windshield and he's he's hanging onto the front of the truck. So what happens? They they drive into like this other truck loaded with like explosives, like this explosive barrel. Harris and Melanie jump out just in time. And then it ends in a fiery explosion where another, the guy who's on the front of it just gets like, yeah, you know, like completely consumed in the fire of the, of this explosion. And I'm just like, you really went all the way. Like it is, it is just. <laughs> and then Miss Mitchell, Miss Mitchell has the line uh, after that, like, you really do like to fight dirty. <laughs> Only sometimes. And she's yeah. she's into it. But and, and he being a man corrects her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and then the next scene, they're on a train and she has found a slinky nightgown. I don't know where because she didn't have luggage with her. I maybe they sell them on the trains in Australia. They're just in the women's restroom waiting. <laughs> or the WC, I guess. It's, yeah. It's a vending machine. It's like it's like when you buy socks at the bowling alley from a vending machine. Yeah. And it's like you can buy a slinky nightgown on a train in Australia. So she comes back and 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 the two of them have some very some very hot dialogues, very on the nose and hot dialogue. Here. I don't think it's on the nose, Chris. That's the wrong body parts. You certainly heal quickly. Just flesh wounds. Hmm. So I see. I only did it to get your undivided attention. I only wore this to get yours. It worked. Just do what I do. Mm-hmm. What's that? Go to sleep. 
making it hard. Sleep on it, Harris. You know, and obviously this scene is intended to evoke the scene on the boat with Indy and Marion. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it doesn't it doesn't quite have the it's 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 more it's more saucy. Yeah, you know? it, it gets it's almost a little bit more um romancing the stone in that way, where you get a little yeah. bit of the, the plane, yes. uh the crashed plane with the the weed. The next scene we find that they're on a tropical beach, and for a moment I actually thought they just cut right to Bora Bora. But they, it's not. They're they're negotiating with a buddy of Harris's to who to borrow a seaplane. And the buddy is a cackling lunatic. And Harris turns into a lunatic as well. <laughs> Because I this negotiation when he's joshing with the guy, he offers him money and then offers him a beer, and he takes the beer. I think, but but he's like, and Harris has one and one money in one hand, a beer in the other, and he's giggling like an idiot, and he's like pulling them in and out of the guy's his buddy's reach, and he's like, eh, eh, and he's like making crazy <laughs> eyes, and I'm like, what kind of relationship do these two have? Because I do not get it at all. <laughs> Just, oh god! It's, uh, yeah, it's it's. But I want to point out our favorite mode of transportation here: seaplane. Sea yes. The only thing they're missing is the lever above the pilot's head that controls everything on the plane. Yes, yes. And that the goose would have. That, yes. that that's it's not a goose. So it doesn't goose have the lever. Oh yeah. And I kept wondering in this point in the movie, Rob. The whole time, Dakota Harris is dressed in this bomber jacket. Yeah. And I'm like. Is he getting hot? Like it's like it feels like it's very would be very warm for the climate. Like he would be first very of all, warm. Chris. You know full well Dakota Harris is hot twenty four seven. It's true. So they fly to Bora Bora uh, to to find the Reverend's friend, the professor, and, and the whole. Like, honestly, the whole Outback detour feels kind of superfluous. I love it, but I don't feel it accomplishes anything. I don't feel like they learn any real information. No, I mean, the only thing it accomplishes is being awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's really it. And and they go to the professor's house on Bora Bora, and he has got gift shop models of Stonehenge <laughs> yeah. and the Easter Island Moai. I'm not kidding. I think my dad literally has the same model of Stonehenge from when we went there back in 91. Oh, wow. Uh, and the house, the house basically goes nuts. Yes. Like there's, there's all the, you get the mystical power, like the, there's the light and the house is going nuts. The, the wind and light and stuff. And I'm not sure why really, but, um, Melanie stops it by throwing this knife into a machine. Yeah. I think it's like a machine. It might be the part of the radio or something, but yes. I'm not you're clear. Being, I was, they I, make it a was very deal out of you can't disturb the, yeah. you know, the mort. But uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I guess if you knife the machine, then you're no longer disturbing them. I guess that's it. And the professor, I think, is dead. But Melanie's father, the reverend, is there and alive. And he tells them they have to get to Easter Island with the pieces of the tablet before Savage does. And that apparently Melanie understands the source of the power, which is good because I don't. <laughs> there's the tablet that Harris kicked off the life raft. They got to go find that piece. So there's a diving sequence where they, they find the plane and Harris goes down and dives uh, to, to bring up the, the crate with the piece of the tablet. And zombie fans, zombie fans, underwater shark photography alert for oh, you. Oh, yeah. Yes. He, he sends the tablet up. And just as the tablet reaches the surface, Savage shows up uh, to take the tablet and Melanie. 
I, I don't know where he came from because he's just in a rowboat. Yeah. Uh, he just seems to, he's in a rowboat and that's it. Snuck up that fast. And then he, like, he steals the seaplane. It's not like, oh, he came in his own plane. No, no. But thankfully, Harris hangs on to the wing. Like we see the plane, you know, kind of take off and Harris in still in full scuba gear is, is, you know, or whatever the, the 40s equivalent. Just the, the old timey names for all these things. It was probably like sea air bubble. Submersible pressure suit. Oh, the portable sky. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he's hanging on to the wing of the plane. I don't know how long it takes to, to get from Bora Bora to Easter Island, but I know that distances in the Pacific are very large. Like the Pacific is a big ocean, but he's hanging on the plane the whole time. I mean, good for him. Harris is a beast, man. He can go. <laughs> That's much longer than that U-boat went in Raiders with, uh, <laughs> oh, with Indiana was, Jones. It was going in like the, it was in the Aegean. It's not that big it's of a sea. Like, no, it's, no, it's very no, small. No. And it's warm like bathwater. He's up in the air. In the air in a wetsuit. <laughs> um, and I, ha- I have to say, Sky Pirates, they shot on location on yeah. Easter Island. And it's very cool. Like you get, you get, you know, Harris and Melanie kind of walking around. And it's like, that is not, that is not, that is not, uh, you know, Sydney for, for Easter Island. That is, that is the real Easter Island. No, and it's one of those things. I don't even know if you'd be allowed to shoot there anymore just because of yeah. the preservation needs, et cetera. Um, I don't know that this is a movie that does justice to Easter Island, but it is amazing to see it, it for real and have the characters there. And it, I mean, that is the kind of production value that is just, it. You, it's priceless. 100%, absolutely. Uh, until you go into the cave, you get back in the cave. So now the cave was obviously a set somewhere. Um, and and the cave, the, the, the last part of this movie is very murky. <laughs> like there's a lot of stuff there walking around caves. And I, I kind of was like, wait, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, he thinks he sees his plane in the cave, like a vision of the plane. And, and the problem with the climax of this movie stems from the fact they didn't figure out what the MacGuffin is and what its power is. So it all just seems like, you know, mystical bullshit. There's lights and smoke and stuff shakes and that's yeah, it's yeah. exactly and that's you know about it's what you get. Yeah. Uh, you know, but again, I, I I enjoyed this movie mo- overall. I thought there's there's some stuff that's really good. There's there's some stuff that's so bonkers that I'm just like, ah, you know. But it's uh, you know it's it's solid and quirky. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's worth checking out. If I know it's uh, I, it might be a little difficult to find. We had to uh, practice some dark arts to get our get our version to watch. But what I can say is that I really did think this movie was strange. Yeah. Until I put on the next movie. <laughs> oh God! Yeah, no, yeah, I, I, yeah. Sky Pirates is an odd picture. Our second film today has haunted me since I watched it earlier this week from 1986. This is Jake Speed. When no one can stop the terror, when everyone looks the other way, you need a hero. You need Jake Speed. Can you handle an adventure? I've never had one before. A paperback hero. Sometimes you do things the hard way. Why? It's better. A living legend. Sounds nice, huh? In a lawless land, he's part man. Beats the hell out of ten divisions. Part myth. <laughs> And a gentleman to the end. Are you sure you're trying your best? Is he real? 
Boise fiction. You're a Boy Scout. Refreshing, isn't it? Jake Speed is both. Don't be a sore loser. Jake Speed. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to hear you. Before we get... I you you may not know this uh, listeners in podcast land. I actually have no idea what he's going to say. We don't go over this ahead of time. You know that would just be too much work. But what I do know is that it's I'm just I'm prepared because I can see his face and you can't. And I need to hear this before we get into the details of Jake's speech. I just I have to tell you I have been utterly confounded by this film since I saw it. Like three days ago. And listen, we've watched movies for this podcast that were honestly worse made. They were they were they were not as as well made a movie as Jake Speed. But I I have never been so completely flummoxed by a film and what it was trying to say. This is including the perils of Gwendolyn, which we talked about last week. In the but land I of just, the yik yak. In the land of the yik yak. I'm just like, I watched Jake Speed and I just I did not understand if is the, if the movie was saying what I thought it was saying, uh, it's the most insane film I've ever seen. It has haunted me. Uh, listen, I saw Oppenheimer a week ago and Jake Speed has haunted me more than fucking Oppenheimer. <laughs> yes. Well, I you just have to imagine that this is the Disney Jiminy Cricket version of an 80s action movie. Oh, God. For when so, you wish upon a star. Oh, my God. The, the, Blow up bad RV. guys. There you are. I don't know. I'm, I'm oh. losing it. <laughs> uh, Jake Speed was made by the Roger Corman-founded New World Pictures, although I believe at this point Corman had sold the company. It was written and produced by Andrew Lane and Wayne Crawford. Lane also directs, and Crawford also stars as the title character Jake Speed. A few years earlier, Lane and Crawford had written and produced Valley Girl, which was a hit in 1983. In addition to Crawford, the film stars Dennis Christopher, Karen Coppins, and John Hurt. Yes, MVP of this movie. Oh, oh, no, there's MVP. no question. John Hurt is, is fantastic. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to John Hurt. It'll take a while because the movie takes a while to get to John Hurt. <laughs> yes, but, it does. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, Jake Speed opens in Paris. Uh, and it's got some terrific synthesizer music. The score was done by Mark Snow, who later wrote the iconic opening theme to The X-Files, uh, as well as music for many, many other movies and television shows. And the opening of this movie is like the 80s version of the Liam Neeson movie, Taken. Yeah. With college student Maureen Winston being kidnapped by two men. But here's what's so weird about it. I have never been involved in kidnapping. But I would think you'd wait till the person you wanted to kidnap was as alone and isolated as possible instead of busting into their hotel room while they're in the mar middle of a party with a bunch of guys uh, leading to this sort of big fight and chase. I'm like, I, I just don't get why you wouldn't just wait until they're alone. Like, it's so weird. It is so weird. And I have no good answer for you. But <laughs> There's no answer. The, the opening shot of this, and which I think is the opening shot of the whole movie. Mm-hmm is really cool where you're hearing the guys talk about their their stalking the girls and yeah. picking their marks and you've got this shot through the window but with light reflecting off the window as well so you're seeing both inside an area 
and the reflection of the bad guys who are outside. Yes. And then they, as they move around uh, the camera, I believe dollies and, you know, it might be steady cam, but they, you, you then get the reveal of like exactly who is where. Cause that in the opening shot, you, it's hard to tell who's inside, who's outside, who's doing what it's, it's, a, it's very, it's the good kind of like visual confusion where you're like, you're disoriented and you're, and then you leading into this big fight, which I, I really like this, you know, this sequence. It's, it's really cool. It's, it makes like, I just feel like as far as kidnappings go, it makes no sense that you'd wait till they were in a party with oh, three dudes. No, it's one of the first tip offs that there's part of this movie that is just off kilter. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So the, the girls are kidnapped. There's two girls that are kidnapped. And and it, we, it was shot in Paris. They shot on location in Paris. I know. I saw the Eiffel Tower. It is not It is not Tarzana for Paris. It is Paris. <laughs> and in any case, we then immediately cut back to Maureen's family, including her parents and her sister, Margaret. And Maureen's father is a complete and total jerk. Yep. Telling that Margaret, that the whole thing is her fault, like that, that her sister's kidnapping is her fault for encouraging her to study abroad. And it's just like, wait, what? Like it's like you smash back into the family just being complete jerks. It's like, it's nuts. It, it is. And I think the father's also, isn't he yelling at like their reverend son who's trying to pray as well? Yeah. <laughs> And he's he's mad about that. And- I want to point out that that Maureen and Margaret's mother, who barely says anything, is played by Millie Perkins, the star of a film we mentioned last week, The Witch Who Came from the Sea. Yes. And Margaret's roommate is Donna Pescal from Saturday Night Fever. And the family is meeting with members of the State Department who are trying to locate and recover Maureen. Enter Grandpa. The greatest grandpa in cinema this side of Silent Night, Deadly Night, folks. Oh, um, my God. This yeah. old coot starts coming in and ranting about how these government types can't get anything done. True. And they're just a bunch of pansies. Also true. I think I know a way to get Marine back. We'll talk about it tomorrow, okay, Pop? Don't hand me that. You and Mike will screw around forever with these government nitwits. You want action, not talk. Well, I agree, sir. But who do you think can help us? Well, there are a few, a very few men. Remo, Mac Boland, Jake Speed. In this case, I think probably Jake Speed's the man for the job. Uh, Pop, why Well, uh, who are these people? I mean, what do they do? They defeat evil where it exists, Pinhead. Well, what's in it for them? You got mush for brains, man. They do it for us. Well, these are books. Characters in books. No shit. And why do you think they got to be books? I have no idea, Mr. Winston. Because so few decent things happen in this world that when something does, people like to read about it. You tell me who's out there trying to do the right thing. Grandpa, these fellas just exist in your imagination. Your ass. They get results. Okay, there's a couple things to unpack here. First, all of this sentiment about the ineffectiveness of government was really, really popular in the Reagan era 80s. Government's not the solution, Chris. Government is the problem. The Reagan line. Yeah. At best, it is it is an ineffective uh, obstacle to be. Uh, sometimes it's actively working against you. But you see this in movies, you know, whether it's Ghostbusters or Iron Eagle, like that anti-government thing. It's just like, well, government can't do anything. I'm like, 
you know, maybe government's what you make it. I don't know. But like grandpa instead suggests finding outside help. And he gives three names. Remo, that is Remo Williams, the main character of the Destroyer novels. Mac Bolan, who was featured in the Executioner series, and the titular Jake Speed. Now, the first two are real-life adventure novel series that were very popular through the 70s and 80s. There was a Remo Williams film that came out a year before this in 1985. And, but these were, these were not characters that the film made up. These were, char- these were real fictional characters that then they insert their third fictional character, Jake Speed. Oh, well, this is the one that the movie made up. So it's like, oh, I think Jake Speed is the man for the job. And these series... Uh, and others like them, they run for years, and they usually number in the hundreds of books with multiple writers working under a common pen name. What just makes me crazy is that Gramps here seems to think that all of these guys are real people and their novels are true stories. Why do you think they made they got to be books? Because someone wrote them, asshole! Like, it's just, like, you're senile, like... Does Gramps think everything is based on reality? And does this movie think that everything is based on reality? Because that's insane. And I can't, my brain. I take it as that not everything is based on reality, but a lot is. This is... (laughs) This is Taken meets Princess Bride meets Miracle on 34th Street, Chris. <laughs> like, uh, uh, it, it, that is that is as accurate a description of this movie as I can I can imagine. Uh, Margaret puts her grandfather to bed because he's a delusional nutcase and is probably a threat to himself and others. Uh, but that night. She goes home and she gets a note under her door saying if she wants to find her sister, she should be at McGill's pub at the San Pedro docks at midnight. Rob, if you ever get a note like that, just take it to the cops. Don't go. It's not a safe place at midnight. I, I, like, what? What? what is going on? Well, uh, th- you know, this was the mid-80s and San Pedro was... Now, if you got a note to go to a bar at midnight in the San Pedro dock area, you would 100% <laughs> do it because it's like... It's all been gentrified. It's like oh, yeah. you'd be going to you'd be going to just some like chic bar at this point. Yeah, uh, but it, not yeah, here. without a sign, a chic bar without a sign that I wouldn't be able to find. At this bar, she goes. She she brings her roommate and 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 a guy who lives down the hall, uh, like one of her neighbors. He goes with her, but he he kind of. I don't know. The guy kind of disappears. He's set up. I thought he was going to be their Rick Moranis and Ghostbusters, but he's just dropped like a bad habit very fast. I think they leave him at the bar. Yeah. Because later you see them driving back and it's just the two women. They left him in fucking San Pedro. <laughs> they live in the valley. It's a long drive. In his in his duck costume. He still had his duck costume. Not the head, but like his body. Like he had the duck feet on when he's walking yeah, down that alley. <laughs> so they come back from the, the family dinner and there's a party down the hall with everybody dressed as their favorite animal. Like there's a, they're in the elevator with a dude dressed as a llama and I'm just, my, my grasp on reality is starting to slip away as I'm watching the, the 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 party with people in costume of 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 animals and i i know we don't we're not supposed to just get personal on this podcast chris but <laughs> this uh in the 1980s american films 
you have so many scenes of elaborate costume parties, right? <laughs> and I this yes. ruined me forever because I can tell you that as a young man in the 90s, when I would hear there'd be a costume thing or whatever, or it's like, oh, it's a Halloween party. I always assumed I would be walking into the party that existed in Jake Speed right. or Terror Train or right. whatever. Something really elaborate. People yeah. put time and money into those costumes. Yeah. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I walked in as the only asshole in the costume. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, it, and there's nothing worse than being the guy who tried when no one else did. I didn't even get invited to the parties, man. You, you, at least you were at the party. I, was, uh, I didn't know. get invited. I heard about them. <laughs> There at McGill's pub in San Pedro, they meet Desmond Floyd and Jake Speed, who say they can find Margaret's sister, who was kidnapped by a gang of sex traffickers, and that Margaret should meet them in Africa in a few days. And right from the off, these guys give a nutjob vibe that is very, very, like anybody who would go with the, don't go with Des and Jake to a second location. That is a bad idea. They are, they are clearly deranged. Chris Marine has no choice because as Jake says, the authorities are letting the trail get as cold as a witch's tit. He says that. He actually says that. Yeah. He, he, that's, that's, that it. Yeah. That's dialogue. And I want to call this out because we're going to call it out a couple more times. <laughs> what is Jake Speed wearing here? It's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt. No, kinda, no, like, no. It's a, this is. Oh, no, that's later. This that's is later. blazer. It's, it's kind of a speckled pack. Yes, that's right. He looks like an English teacher. It's not quite houndstooth, but it's, it's in that <laughs> vicinity. Yes. And then he's got like yes. a striped Oxford and it might be jeans. So I just want to. This is this is his look in this scene meeting at the San Pedro bar for his new client. Okay, and we'll just I'll just pick that up later. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're very like the the dynamic between uh, Desmond and Jake is very strange. Like like it seems like Jake is the boss and and Des is trying to convince him to do the job, and we're never quite sure why are they so like it's just it's it's so. God, I, everything about this movie is so strange that I am just, I, I, I have trouble even, like, Margaret asks why she should, like, like if they can find the sister, why don't they just do it? And, yeah. you know, if they know where the sister is, why do they need her? And their answer is, sometimes you do things the hard way. And Margaret, to her credit, asks why. And their reason is, because it reads better. Yep. The implication being that if you didn't actually do it, you can't write it down. I, I, it's called fiction. If you, you could just embellish it. You could have, you didn't have to meet at a fucking seedy bar in San Pedro. You could have, could have met at the Holiday Inn in Burbank. I don't know, Chris. Uh, are you telling me that when you write, you just make things up? Because I've, <laughs> I have performed in real life everything that I've ever written down. Like, I yeah. just the, the, and, and the movie uh, like seems to really believe this sort of worldview. Like, I, like and I say that there's a there was a slightly deranged quality. To, to Jake and Des in the scene. There's a slightly odd dynamic. And, and because it, the movie convinced me that it was going in a direction, and we'll get to that, what I kind of started to believe this movie was 
as we go along. Yeah, because because there, there's there's the there's the way to do it where you think, oh, you write the stuff down and it becomes real in real life, but that's not no, it's that's not it. So Margaret's roommate is the sole voice of reason here. She's like. Don't go with these people. That's insane. But they stop at a newsstand where they see a bunch of Jake Speed novels, which Desmond writes under the pen name Reno Mellon. <laughs> if I ever have to lamb it on my own, I am going under the name Reno Mellon. I will ask the the motel if anyone's checked in under the name Reno, Reno Mellon. It's only if I'm going alone. I have my wife and I have different names if we have to flee together. So Margaret's trying to make up her mind and she keeps seeing the word speed everywhere. Yep. Like she looks at like traffic signs and laundry trucks like and it's just it's insane. And of course, she decides to go. And and the 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 roommate's pointing out how dumb it all like Here's my question, Rob. Does a movie with a dumb premise get credit for continually pointing out how dumb the premise is? Yeah, I think Jake Speed does. <sighs> so she travels to Africa and uh, we get a little casual racism along the way because the first plane is kind of normal. like, yep. And then she's traveling on the plane in Africa and there's like livestock running through the aisles. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and she gets to the unnamed African country, and they meet up with Jake and Des. I have no idea why the group didn't travel together. They just seem to go all like at the same time. I'm like, okay. I think Jake needed uh, a couple days to shop for the new wardrobe, which I want to talk about right here. Yes. Because <laughs> now he is dressed. This is your island type shirt. Yes. It's not exactly Hawaiian, but it's not African either. It's like floral. It's 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 blue floral. And he's got like one of those white undershirts like Brando had in Streetcar. Yep. And he's got this big, big chunky necklace <laughs> uh, and kind of, you know, khaki pants. This really is radically different from, I thought, they were setting up, oh, is he like the gentleman, you know, soldier yeah. of fortune? And now it's like, they're playing it like he's blending in. But believe me, folks. He's not blending this in. This is not blending in at all. This is not like, yeah. <laughs> Jake, Speed. Jake Speed's, his wardrobe confuses me the most out of anything in this it, in this film. And we're it, not even at the end of it yet. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not to the level of J.T. Stryker from Treasure of the Four Crowns, who I would dress like on a daily basis. Hey, but- his outfit changes all made sense and they all like yes. they were all so JT Striker. Exactly. Here it's like Jake Speed doesn't know who he is. It's like I don't know who Jake Speed is. He's like it's like if Styles from Teen Wolf decided <laughs> to be a soldier of fortune. That's Jake that's Jake Speed. And they're driving around. Uh, apparently the country is on the verge of revolution. We're never told the details of who's fighting or why. And we're they're waiting for Harv to arrive. Rob, I want to talk about Harv for a moment. Yeah. Harv stands for heavy armored raiding vehicle. It is basically a super truck that Jake is waiting to be delivered by this unknown party. And it hasn't arrived yet, and that's a problem. And and Des mentions that Doc Savage used these freight guys all the time, to which Jake replies, Savage isn't even in the business anymore. <laughs> For those who might not be familiar with Doc Savage, Doc Savage was a character that appeared in pulp novels of the 30s and 40s, written by Lester Dent and published by Street and Smith, the same folks who published The Shadow. And he's a man of action character who's dedicated to righting wrongs and punishing evildoers. And Margaret asks, is there such a thing? And Jake replies, 
well, you read about it, didn't you? Like, it's just, it's all of these guys are apparently real. And, and they're, and they're, the fiction is, is the, like the transcriptions of their actual adventures. You know, like, is it, is it such a thing? You read about it, didn't you? I've read a lot of things that doesn't make them all true. How, that, I just, like, I am <laughs> confounded by this conceit. Is every book ever written based on reality, according to this movie? It's mind boggling. Yeah, and you have to keep it a secret is the other thing. You don't want the publicity that would come with saying that it was a true story. You have to pretend that it's fictional. Right. But but then be um be offended if someone thinks that it's fictional. Right. Oh yeah, no, oh no. How could you Well, you, you read about yeah. it, didn't you? Jake Speed is the huffiest hero oh, in the so, history. He's so of, yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's very moody and huffy, like like a like a middle school well and and again we're gonna i i had a thought of where i believe this movie was to be going and i'm gonna okay i'm gonna peel back those layers as we get there and the huffiness and the fact that he gets offended when someone doesn't believe that he does the things he says he does would fit if the movie went where i believed i genuinely believed it to be going and and just just for for the folks out there i mean this is very clearly a comedy you know i I mean and kind of. Um. Yeah, I think it's action comedy. So, like, they're, you know, they're, like, when Jake's getting huffy, I think it's supposed to be yeah. funny. Well, yeah, it's, it's supposed you know, to be banter. Like, they're in this yeah. crummy hotel, and they're having banter, and I'm just like, uh, like, the hotel yeah. is so crappy that, like, the water comes out black from the faucet, which Margaret yep. doesn't even notice until she starts brushing her teeth with it. And I'm asking myself, is it possible to depict an economically depressed country without being racist about it? Jake, Des, and Margaret go to the Monaco Bar and Grill for the next phase of the plan. Rob, let's talk about the music at the Monaco Bar and Grill. Oh. <laughs> this is... You get an extended when we, when we make the full switch. Yes. There's an extended um, music and dance sequence of sorts because people there yes. are doing some stuff as well as the performers. And it is the greatest cover of Maniac from Flashdance that <laughs> yes. you'll ever hear. I might like it better than the original, frankly. It's amazing. I, I, at yeah. least part of it sounded like it was on a xylophone. Yeah, I, I'm going to guess. I, I mean, hopefully they actually, it's like, you know, local Locals. instrumentation or something. Yeah. I, I do not know enough to know. It was amazing. But um, it's 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 like legitimately amazing. It's not. It was in my head you know, for a couple of days. Yeah. Now apparently they're going to this bar, and the plan is to. This is their plan. This is their plan is to sell Margaret to the same sex traffickers who kidnapped her sister in hopes they will lead Jake and Des back to their base where they can rescue both sisters. And Margaret asks, "What if you sold me to the wrong guys?" Jake's reply. That would make a piss poor story. <laughs> I can't get my mind around the worldview of this movie. It's like, it's just by the, like, it's this with this movie. Actually, I don't understand it. I, I, I think, I think yes, actually, <laughs> because we, we get some stuff yes. toward the end, which the we'll get into yes. that. The answer is yes. This the movie. The answer is yes. Which yeah. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> 
Because so the attempt to sell Margaret goes sideways. Yeah, in part because they don't tell her what the plan is ahead of time. Yeah, they didn't tell her the plan. They did not. Now, granted, if they told her the plan, if someone said, "Oh, here's our plan," to me, like I would be like, "To hell with that, pal." I mean, on the other hand, yeah. you know, maybe you'd for your, to get your sister back, maybe you'd you'd take a chance. Uh, they do have to dive out of the bar head first through a plate glass window, JT Striker style. That's right. Uh, you know, it's uh. Yeah, you know, and there's there's they they get back to the hotel. They find the hotel has been destroyed by the the civil war that's raging. And it, for a moment, it seems like uh, they're going to part ways. But Margaret sort of gets their attention by calling by by saying that that Jake and Des are really queer. And like you know, she's like, oh, I, I'll get. Uh, and then she's trying to get their attention because there's like some nearby gunmen. But there's this weird moment where she kind of calls them out as, and they get very offended, like as as people in '80s movies did. Yes, when when you might imply that they weren't entirely heterosexual, people get very offended in '80s movies. But when you know Jake Speed sees what she's doing, and yes. there are the guys' butt cracks in the mirror behind the bar. <laughs> These are the guys from earlier who want to kidnap her, and they were fighting. This is amazing because. Jake Speed's gun, which he shoots at them like from the ground with like he's on his back and he's just putting his arm up (laughs) over the the (laughs) railing. Yes. Not even seeing. But one, I mean, these guys are shooting at him and it's like nothing is happening. Right. He shoots like two shots at them and it's like a cruise missile because (laughs) the entire bar that they're hiding behind just explodes like into splinters of nothingness and these two dudes are just instantly dead. It does. It's uh, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Which which again is like in another movie you might say is is one thing, but here I really think it is magical realism. It's like this guy <laughs> It's the only explanation. He's overpowered. Yeah. yeah. Like it's so they they flee the hotel and they wind up in this leaky barn. And this leaky barn is where the Harv that I mentioned earlier, the the heavy armored raining vehicle, is supposed to be delivered. And they take a few minutes, by the way, to pose for the photo that's going to be the cover of the book. Because if you don't have a cover, Rob, you don't have a book. Despite the fact the covers of the Jake Speed books are clearly artists- they needed the photo, so I guess the artist could could the reference do, photo. Yeah, yeah, the reference photo. Uh, Margaret, uh, you know, has already indulged these lunatics too far. She asks Jake why he thinks the car will show up. What makes you think some moronic car called Harv is going to show up when it hasn't, and it probably won't? Because I want it, and if you want something bad enough, you'll get it. You never had a plan. You crackpots never had a plan. Or was that the plan? Not to have one? You know, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have this opportunity. I mean, until I changed my mind about this plan, which I admit it was a mistake, but baby, I don't make very many of them. That maybe were your concern. We were going to wait here for that car called Harv to be dropped. And then we were going to fight our way through enemy territory. Scale the highest mountain in this goddamn place. Traverse a bridge that was about to collapse. And then if we were lucky, I mean, real lucky, we were going to fight our way through 2,000 extremely poisonous snakes. There are thousands of snakes around here? There's got to be if you look hard enough. You're mad. No, I'm sorry. 
You're a lunatic! Why? Why is that? Hasn't it ever occurred to you that there just might be an easier way? Yeah, so where's the entertainment value? I want my sister! I want my sister! Because I want it. And if you want something bad enough, you get it. That's psychotic. <laughs> Rob, I have found that that sentiment is not true in real life. I have There are things I have wanted very badly and have not gotten them, but I understand the way the world works. And this is just mentally illogic at this point. Okay. At this point in the movie, I'm thinking to myself, this has got to be like a mentally ill guy who has taken on the persona of Jake Speed to the point where he believes it himself. And for some reason, Des is either sharing in this delusion or is going on with along with it for some reason. As if, and this is, I for a moment, I really thought this is what the movie was, like an action movie version of The Fisher King. Okay, yeah. That like something tragic had happened and broke this guy. And this is how his broken mind is dealing with it. And I'm like, that's the only logical explanation. And for a moment, I thought that's where we're going when Margaret, the, the Jake and Des are asleep and Margaret looks in Jake's wallet and she finds a New Hampshire driver's license in the name of Robert Lafleur. And, and then another one in the name of Alfred Eddy, another one. They're all slightly different. They're all from New Hampshire, which is weird. If it's, you have a bunch of fake IDs, why are they all from New Hampshire uh, with, with different addresses? I looked at I, – I, I paused the film to, to see. They're all different addresses. They all have slightly different versions of Jake. Like one has like a sunglasses photo shopped on. I don't know. <laughs> but I really was starting to think, oh, that's what this movie is. It's like an action Fisher King. It's not. No. That's not what it is. The movie is absolutely to be taken at face value. And... Uh, yeah, you were, you were swimming against the current. I always took this thing at face value. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me dumb or smart. But I, I don't I know, just, but... I was it, like, I, I, this... He's it, kind of magic, and he wants to live it before he, they write it. Um, <laughs> I... You know, Margaret leaves when she does the smart thing. She leaves and she ends up at the British consulate where she's told that Jake and Des are a pair of con men named Robert Ronson and James Packwood. And meanwhile, while while Margaret has taken off, uh, Jake and Des are playing catch. They're having a catch in the middle of a, a civil war and and they're wondering why Margaret didn't believe them. I'm like, what? What is wrong with you two? They're moping. They're They're moping moping around. And wondering why Margaret didn't believe them. And Des actually says, we believe. That's why we win. Yeah. I so but but that said, Jake and Des as con men didn't feel right to me either. So I'm like, that doesn't necessarily make sense. So Margaret returns <laughs> and, and she returns to Jake and Des and she brings soldiers from the consulate who place Jake under arrest. Des gets away. And then what happens, Rob? The moment that I think broke me. (laughs) Harv, the heavily armored raiding vehicle, drops out of the sky and through the ceiling of this leaky barn. And it's there and real, complete with a license plate that says speed. And I'm just like, uh, I, I, I could not. 
I was like, oh, oh, I thought it was going to this thing. And no, no, it's not. It's just all real. They can apparently materialize armored vehicles out of thin fucking air. Well, no. I mean, that's that's the moving company that worked with uh, Doc Savage. Clearly. They oh, yeah, yeah. You're the, right. You're right. I have it sky. wrong. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not magic. Yeah. It's just a moving company. Oh, my God. So... The thing that, that that got me though is that Harv dropping in doesn't actually do anything. No, because uh, two of them get captured, but Desmond, they and they never show it or deal with it. Desmond just vanishes from the movie until like the toward the end of the third act. The, the, towards the very end, when he shows up, yeah. manipulating Harv by remote control, like it's yeah. So the bad guys decided to leave Desmond and Harv and Harv, which is <laughs> like, like like okay. Jake and Margaret are brought back to the consulate, which isn't a consulate at all, but actually the headquarters of an international sex trafficking ring headed by Sid, who is played with absolute gleeful evil by John Hurt. John Hurt doesn't show up until two-thirds of the way through this movie, but when he does, he is amazing. I'm a bad guy, Jake. I do anything I want. I lie. I cheat. I steal. I kill. Let's see. Have I left something out? I take great pride in never having lived up to anything. I love it. Yeah. I love it when Margaret shows up in that barn before we know, and and when Jake notices that she's wearing the shirt with the SW monogram. Yes, and he clearly knows that it's his, his arch nemesis. His nemesis. Although we never learned Sid's actual last name, so I I, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't get the W. I was like, oh, it's just it's uh, you know, it's, it's in it. the book, Chris. You just got to read the book. You're right. I gotta I gotta I gotta track down the book by Reno Mellon. It's they're selling them at that newsstand uh, that's off of Ventura Boulevard, so it's not that far yeah. from my house. No, it, it, Hurt is the best thing about this movie. He gives this this performance that is both flamboyant and menacing of anybody. He truly feels like he stepped out of a pulp novel. Uh, as as the kids would say today, he understood the assignment. Yeah, and then his brother, uh, Morris. Morris, the queer-quoted brother, yeah. Yeah, but uh, just to give you some idea again of the, the – like this is clearly a, a, a just a flat-out comedy film. He is reading <laughs> – for real, and it's never commented upon. You just notice it, and then it goes away. <laughs> yes. He's reading the Weekly World News, Weekly which World News. Yeah, for the yeah. for the younger and other people, Weekly World News was a publication, <laughs> a tabloid paper <laughs> that would just publish things like Elvis is an alien and still walking among us, uh, like through the it, into the nineties. Bat Boy, they had a lot of Bat Boy stories. Bat Boy, and I think they're still online now, but they no longer publish. Sadly, it was like the it was like the satire version of like the National Enquirer and other yes. tabloids, but yeah. like it was making like it was clearly an obvious joke, and they're reading it. Um, yeah, yeah, the Mad Magazine of of, of tabloids, if yes. you will. Um, yeah, by this point, I, I had begun to realize that my hope for sort of an additional layer of narrative to this movie uh, was, in fact, misguided. That I <laughs> had gotten it wrong. I had gotten it wrong, not the movie, because this is a movie where, you know, a four-wheeled, a fully armed four-wheeled drive vehicle drops out of the sky. Then we have this, 
you know, we the, there's a prolonged series of chases and escapes in Sid's compound. They clearly that was like one of their big filming locations was that compound, and they were gonna yeah. use every square inch of it. Uh, like Sid has a trick staircase that he pu- pulls oh. a lever and sends yep. this sliding down into a room filled with hungry lions. Yep, amazing, amazing. Like it, there is aspects of this movie that are fantastic. Oh, just as when Jake is going down that slide <laughs> and he takes his gun and he shoots away the giant um, machete blades. kind of thing. Yeah. He shoots them away you know, and then goes right into the lion pit. Th- this whole movie has an air of a holodeck adventure gone wrong episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> like that's what it feels yeah, like. Yeah. Complete with the, the, the over-the-top guest star villain – you know, like Sid is their Moriarty. He's a little Moriarty. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Which, by the way, that could be that could be the key. This could be the American Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where Doctor the, the the stories are just Watson recounting their yes, true adventures. Yes. Maybe oh, it's, uh, could, maybe that's the there's idea. a whole subset of of Sherlock Holmes fan. I am a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Although I there's a whole subset of Sherlock of like Sherlock Holmes fans who play what they call the great game where they try and reconcile the events of Sherlock Holmes stories with real life as if Sherlock Holmes and Watson were real people. I am going to start playing the great game for Jake Speed. Oh. Like how did he, you know, is, you know, I got to track down. Apparently the novelization of the movie was, was really written under the name Reno Mellon. Oh, wow. Des shows up. He starts controlling Harv by remote control. Eventually Jake gets in the, the car and he starts driving it through Sid's compound and out again and leading to an extended chase sequence, uh, which is pretty good. Like it's a pretty good chase sequence through the mountains. Yep. It, it, it all culminates at this airfield where basically everybody in the country is trying to get out because the revolution's coming. And Sid shoots Dez and then takes like a random passerby hostage. Hang it up, Jake, you're all news. Now it's terrorists, bombers, politicians, lawyers, people like me. Everybody's living off somebody else. But don't you get it, Jake? It's our time. You're too good to be true. Your history, Jake. If that were true, the gun wouldn't have jammed. Evil may triumph, Sid, but never conquer. You're a boy scout. Refreshing, isn't it? And this is after, I mean, earlier, Jake Speed had shot Sid full in the chest and thought that he killed him. Turns out he was wearing the bulletproof vest. So, and this is another instance where Sid is about to get it. Sid becomes kind of like Jason Voorhees in the end of this (laughs) movie, where he literally, he dies, I think two or three times, but keeps coming back for more. He keeps coming back. Yeah, he does. And, and Sid's like, it's it's my time. I'm the, I'm the, the top dog or whatever. And Jake's like, if that were true, the gun wouldn't have jammed, but the gun didn't jam when Des got shot. Like the guy that Sid took hostage I bet he didn't want to die, but Sid cuts his throat. And was he not wishing hard enough to live? Was that what happened? That guy wasn't wishing hard enough to live. Well, no. I mean, I think this movie, right or wrong, sets it up as, you know, Jake Speed is the hero and the hero will always prevail. 
it doesn't necessarily mean that the hero can prevent all bad things from happening in the world. This is the classic, why does God let bad things happen kind of. Why does Jake Speed let bad things happen, Rob? Oh, by the way, the friend, the other girl who is kidnapped in, in Paris. Oh, they leave they her. They just leave her for dead. Yeah. She, she actually got sold. They were delivering her to the people that bought her. And Jake just forgets about her. Because if, you know, if you're not on Jake Speed's radar, you, your life is terrible. But if, you, yeah. if Jake Speed cares about you, you're going to be okay. Margaret and Maureen push their way onto the plane uh, to fly to safety, while hundreds of black people who are trying to get on the plane are left to whatever fate befalls them. Yeah, because that's a, there's more like uh, Civil War stuff happening. And somehow this was... Jake Speed doesn't even kill Sid. Nope. Like, Sid gets on the plane, too. Yeah. The two sisters are on the plane, and then Sid gets up and starts walking towards them down the aisle and then just drops dead. Well, I guess it's a delayed killing, because he he drops dead from the explosion wounds that Jake had caused, uh, uh, you know, minutes earlier. Yes. Uh, Dez, by the way, is okay. Yeah. The the, the bullet wound was just superfluous, because, because I'm sure Jake Speed wanted him to live, so therefore that's what happened. Absolutely. Sometime later, Margaret is back in Los Angeles and she walks down to the newsstand in the rain to buy a copy of Zambezi Run, the latest Jake Speed adventure novel with her and an absolutely terrible artist rendering of Jake on the cover uh, in the pic- in the pose that they took the picture of. Yep. And they added the gun just as they said they would. They added the gun just as they said they can add it later. I'm like, they can't add anything. They have to do everything the hard way because they can't invent scenarios, but they can add the gun to the 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 the, the cover. This movie is is so it's so strange. Like I I I I really I could not understand the mindset of this movie. It's not it's a bad movie, it's just so John Hurt is great. Yeah, uh, like he, he, it's just, this movie, uh, it broke me a little bit. It broke me a little bit. It is a very odd movie. It is definitely, again, it's later in the trend. Yes. It is trying to do crazy different things. So it's this is not a Raiders knockoff by any stretch of the imagination. No, it's doing something different. Look, I, I'm not going to say that they always threaded the needle perfectly for me, but I I was able to roll with it and to just to, just to call out one thing in particular, like this is not a poorly written movie either. Again, they might have been no. trying avant-garde things that may or may not work for you, but that John, when John hurt, when Sid gives that, uh, I'm the, I'm a bad guy speech. Yeah. That's great. Dude. I mean, like that is acting class monologue worthy level of, of dialogue writing. Yeah, no, it's, it's terrific. It's absolutely. And it's, uh, I just, I like the the premise was so strange to me from the jump (laughs) that I, 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 convinced myself that there's no way this could just be the face value thing that it had to be another layer of it. And when that turned out to just be like, Oh no, no, it's just the face value thing. The worldview of this movie haunts me. And I hopefully, I don't know. Hopefully I will have recovered by, uh, by our next, by next week's episode, because I may take some time in the sensory deprivation tank, uh, in order to, in order to, to, to 
you know, kind of get my head right. But it's just yeah. so it's take so a weird. soak. It's so take weird. a soak. <laughs> get get some Epsom salts and lavender. Treat yourself. <laughs> you deserve it. These these were two of. I mean, again, as you said earlier, I thought Sky Pirates was weird until I saw Jake Speed, and my brain exploded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. Yes. That's anyway. Uh, we hopefully you guys, the audience out there, will also be able to recover before our next episode next week on Get Me Another Indiana Jones. We're going to look at two more adventure films. These revolve around two very different couples who find themselves entangled in adventures with two very different guides. So join us next week for the further adventures of Tennessee Buck as well as Bloodstone. Again, we thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Get Me Another Pod. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies about the show. And remember that you, too, can make an all-terrain vehicle fall from the sky if you want it badly enough. I know... I'll be wishing for all of you to join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another.